Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books of Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today we'll be talking to the author of Curtailing Corruption, People Power for Accountability and Justice. I have the real pleasure to talk to the author today. Shaska, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Shaska, it was a pleasure to read the book and to um, just get a little sense of of some of your uh, background, which is a little different than uh, uh, many authors who are full-time at universities. Before we get to your very interesting book, would you tell us a little bit about where you've been, and also where you are now. Tell us about yourself. Uh, Thank you, Heath. Uh, I am presently a senior advisor with the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict in Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm also a visiting scholar at the Center for Transatlantic Relations at SAIS at Johns Hopkins University, also in Washington, D.C. But I've lived in many places uh, around the world, and... uh, I really have had the the privilege of getting to know people in very different circumstances uh, with very different backgrounds. Yeah, I I only hope that you were able to travel to half of the places (laughs) that you focused on the book. If if you have, uh, then then your travel life is much, much more interesting than mine. The book is just so rich with um, these cases from from so many really interesting places, not not all um, places that we would normally travel to, but but it really um, did add to to uh, what this book is all about. So let's let's start with a, a real basic question: um, What is corruption? Um, and and as important as that, uh, what distinguishes your definition of corruption from the ways others have defined it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I you can imagine that I thought about this a lot, uh, and. Uh, Once I started doing the research, I started uh, expanding my notion about what corruption is and how it functions. So we have uh, the traditional definition, which is a good one, which is that it's the misuse of entrusted power for private gain. Um, But once I started studying these campaigns and movements around the world, I started to realize that this um, abuse of power actually functions in systems, different kinds of systems. And so I expanded upon this uh, traditional definition, and for me, corruption is a system of abuse of entrusted power for not only private gain, but also collective or political gain. And uh, it often involves uh, complex, intertwined sets of relationships. Some of them can be obvious, others are hidden. And within these relationships are established vested interests that can operate vertically within an institution or cut horizontally across different political, economic, and social spheres in the society or transnationally. Of course, nobody can be expected to remember a definition like that, so probably there's a reason why the short one is the one that's really used. Um, But I think for purposes of understanding how to curb corruption, it's important for us to think of it in terms of a system. Uh, and there's actually another way to think about corruption, and uh, this is a, I would say, is a people-centered 
pers- uh, approach or perspective. And I, uh, uh, the, I would borrow um, a definition that Aruna Roy discusses. She is the co-founder of the Right to Information movement in India, and she says that corruption is the external manifestation of the denial of a right, an entitlement, a wage, a medicine, etc. So from the perspective of regular people, corruption is really about the kinds of oppression and injustices. It's the manifestation, or it's the, um, it's uh, manifested through all these different types of injustices and oppression that bear down on people in their lives. One of the things that I was really intrigued by and, and sort of a notion I, I hadn't thought about prior to reading the book was, was that you argue that anti-corruption and peace-building efforts have operated quite distinctly in the past. Mm-hmm. I've always thought, I just sort of never had occurred to me. Why has this been the case? Why have these... Um, you know, major movements um, worked worked so independently of each other. Maybe not in every case, but but generally speaking, independent of each other. Uh, I think that uh, traditionally, all the different types of um, human uh, humanitarian activities, whether it can be peace building, uh, humanitarian crisis uh, aid, uh, development uh, aid. Uh, traditionally have had a top-down focus and often in reality have to deal with um, urgent critical matters uh, uh, such as you know getting uh, food water medicine to people very quickly uh, so that they can survive Um, and corruption traditionally was not really talked about in these spheres and it was almost in a way a taboo subject so the relationship between corruption and peace building was really not something that traditionally was examined or uh, the, the role that corruption plays in uh, preventing or thwarting peace building was not really considered. But that's changing. That's, that's the good news. And there are scholars such as Cheyenne Sharbatke Church and Kirby Riling that have written extensively about this and have uh, really started uh, a discussion about the relationship between corruption and peace building and how it's essential that uh, corruption be factored into peace building activities. Uh, So in a sense, they argue that uh, we cannot uh, truly foster uh, peace building and conflict um, transformation if we don't factor into, into our activities the role that corruption plays in violent conflict. Yeah, one of the things that I, I also enjoyed about the book, um, very much to the points you just made, was that you don't you don't uh, remain just in the world of theory. Um, the details here and 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 how active this book is, I thought was very very interesting. You, you focus on on nine nonviolent efforts to curb corruption very specifically. I wonder if you could talk about what forms this might take. Um, what's in the toolbox? Uh, of interesting ways that civil society is using to address corruption in nonviolent ways. We'll then talk about some more of the, you know, where these are happening. But if you look at sort of the toolbox, what's available? What are the types of uh, things that um, groups, uh, organizations, activists might do? Well, my my background is a a people power background. So I've uh, studied 
written and I do a lot of education about people power and nonviolent struggle uh, for rights and justice. Uh, so uh, in looking at the, the range of activities or actions uh, these types of movements, campaigns, and civic initiatives take, uh, I was struck by, on the one hand, uh, similarities uh, between these types of um, people power manifestations and other uh, more well-known types, such as uh, struggles against uh, authoritarianism or occupations. On the other hand, I was also struck by how there are so many innovative tactics or sets of tactics uh, that are uh, being created by these, uh, these movements and campaigns that target corruption that really expand our notion and expand the range of, of actions that citizens can take. So, for example, some of the ones that came out of this research are uh, things like uh, are a whole category one could call monitoring. Monitoring of officials, monitoring of institutions, budgets, spending, provision of public services, uh, various uh, public projects, uh, reconstruction and development projects. So in a sense, these types of not what we would call in our field nonviolent tactics are in a way disrupting a, a system of corruption in that particular context. And that's a very interesting notion so that when we're fighting corruption, uh, one way to impact it is to disrupt the system of corruption. So monitoring uh, and in its many, many varieties can disrupt systems of corruption. Another, another important tactic uh, that came out of the research was information gathering. So gathering information and then combining it with other nonviolent actions in order to create uh, pressure on power holders and uh, to either achieve change, to um, to rectify uh, shoddy uh, projects, uh, to uh, perhaps um, gain access and input into spending and prior prior oh, that's a tough word prioritizing of uh, 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 projects and needs of citizens. Uh, another type of tactic which we wouldn't necessarily think of in terms of fighting corruption is education and training and that was really important so uh, for citizens acquiring skills and knowledge in order to for example monitor in order to understand um, what power holders are doing so in real life that can be learning how to read uh, contracts and understand them, learning how to read blueprints of projects and going and conducting public inspections of them, uh, learning how to read or decipher budgets. Um, and finally, another interesting uh, tactic was uh, something called a reverse boycott. Um, so I, we're all familiar with boycotts, uh, but a reverse boycott is something where citizens patronize or support businesses rather than withdraw uh, their support from them. And that came out of a case in Italy uh, of a, a youth anti-mafia movement in Palermo. Yeah, and, and that's actually one that I'd like to talk to talk to you about in just, just a little bit. And, you know, this, this uh, 
uh, idea of monitoring that, that you focus on uh, is so related to the recent podcast that some of our listeners might have heard. Judith, Judith Kelly, who, who wrote this really interesting book recently on monitoring democracy. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of uh, interesting overlap between what you've worked on and what, what she's worked on. Um, you have such interesting cases in the book, such such um, such detail. So let's start with what what happened in Brazil. Um, what type of corruption are we looking at there? And, and what did the digital resistance movement do to try to curtail the, the uh, Brazilian style of corruption? Okay. Uh, well, the Brazilian case is very interesting. And I'll add a footnote uh, before I, I get to your question. A lot of the demonstrations that we have seen and, and basically civic mobilizations that we've been witnessing in Brazil over the past year reflect this shift in Brazilian society and this newfound sense of empowerment in Brazilian society for citizens to raise their voices and make demands upon power holders and those who are um, supposed to be serving them in the government. And this came out of this movement. It's called the Ficha Limpa movement, which means clean slate or clean record. So, um, Uh, The movement addressed political corruption. As one can imagine, that's a very vast uh, (laughs) type of corruption to tackle. So what happened was that uh, a group of civic leaders came together and basically narrowed that down to say that we we need to clean up the Brazilian Congress. Uh, The quality of of elected officials is very low. It was estimated at the time of the movement that approximately 28 to about 33 percent of elected officials in the Brazilian Congress had criminal, had serious criminal records, including um, rape, murder, um, corruption, and uh, racism. And there's a special category of of, criminal behavior under the uh, called racism in Brazil. So they said, let we need to first clean up the Brazilian Congress in order to start tackling political corruption. And so that was the 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 kernel of this uh, movement. The digital campaign followed a three year on the ground campaign, The three year on the ground campaign focused on citizen uh, sponsored legislation submitted to the Brazilian Congress that would bar um, people from holding office if they had been convicted by two judges of serious crimes. I won't go into them, but along the lines of what I just mentioned, they succeeded. That was a a huge movement. Uh, It involved many hurdles. Once the bill was submitted into, into the Brazilian Congress, this movement joined forces with Avaz.org, and many of um, your listeners will know of Avaz.org. This is a global digital um, civic platform to mobilize and harness people's voices from around the world on various problems and um, injustices. So one person in Brazil with Avaz.org coordinated a digital campaign to push the legislation through the Brazilian Congress. And um, I was just struck by the, by how literally uh, people power was wielded in the digital realm through what we could call digital tactics. And that this created 
huge pressure on the Brazilian Congress. And after four months of campaigning, uh, this was this bill was una- uh, was um, by um, a large majority in both the se- uh, the House and the Senate was uh, basically voted uh, and uh, became legislation. Yeah, I think the the case is just so illustrative of of much of what um, what you're trying to do in the book, and and um, maybe it's sort of the more familiar type of of resistance, uh, nonviolent resistance, that, that what we would expect. But as you alluded to earlier, um, there's also, also these somewhat more innovative or maybe less conventional approaches. Um, and so with that in mind, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the movement in Italy against the Piso. Um, what is this idea? And, and, and what were they, what was the, uh, what was civil society trying to combat in, in Italy that maybe is a little less um, conventional than what we would expect in, in Brazil and other countries? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Adio Pizzo movement in uh, Palermo, Italy, um, was uh, launched by young people. It's an ongoing, nonviolent youth resistance movement against the mafia, in part, uh, specifically the Cosa Nostra mafia in Palermo. And Pizzo is the uh, slang uh, word that refers to extortion money. So the, the movement is called Goodbye Extortion Money. And uh, basically, this movement wanted to start weakening the hold that uh, the Cosa Nostra Mafia had over Palermo. And so they very strategically and brilliantly uh, sort of uh, narrowed down the struggle to something that, that cuts to the core of the Cosa Nostra's presence in Palermo. And that is extortion, extortion of all kinds of businesses. And it's estimated uh, that in Palermo, I don't know when the study was done several years ago, that 80% of businesses pay extortion money to the mafia. So what they wanted to do was encourage businesses to stop paying pizza, extortion money to the mafia on the one hand, and on the other hand, to encourage citizens to support businesses that refuse to cooperate with the mafia and pay pizza. So it was a dual strategy of non-cooperation, to use the Gandhian term, non-cooperation of businesses with the mafia on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, basically uh, empowerment of the, of the citizenry to themselves disempower the mafia by supporting those who do not cooperate with it. And, and how effective uh, was this movement? What, uh, is there any way that uh, you can describe sort of the uh, how, how effective uh, this move was in curtailing this, this type of corruption mm-hmm. in, in Palermo? Mm-hmm. Um, about a few, about a couple of years ago, um, Adio Pizzo reported that over a thousand businesses in Palermo stopped paying pizza. Now, that's not the majority of businesses, but it's a significant number. All the more so because every business that refuses to pay extortion money publicly refuses. And um, there is a website, there are leaflets, and uh, there are fairs in which these businesses come together. And any business that is on the street, for example, a store, a restaurant, um, a pension, a hotel, whatever, 
any business like that, like that that is visible on the street has a sticker on its window or door that sim- that shows that it refuses to pay pizza. So it's visible. And this has broken the reign of fear of the mafia. Um, there has been documentation that mafia basically leaves these businesses alone. And, and there was actually a wire, I believe it was a wiretap of one mafiosi who was recorded having said, don't bother with this business because they're a pain in, in, um, they're a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, the, the, all the, the businesses that are aligned with the Adio Pizza movement are a pain in the butt and they're scared to deal with them. Contrast this to what happened before Adio Pizzo. When businesses refused to pay pizza, they would, they, they would, have, they would have their businesses, uh, they would be threatened, they would be harassed, um, their businesses would be uh, physically attacked, bombed, set fire to, and in some cases, the owners were killed. Uh, so there's a huge contrast between what used to go on and what is going on now. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, and, and there's a number of cases that we um, haven't talked about and probably don't have the time yeah. to, but really do enrich enrich the book. And so we, we can't even do justice to all of these different uh, different cases. One of the things that I was wondering is, as I finished the book was how this relates to to the work you do. Uh, you mentioned at the start that you're a senior advisor at the International Center on Non Nonviolent Conflict. Um, how does publishing a book like this for you um, affect what you do? Um, uh, what are the opportunities you've had to either share this with with those out in the field, or or teach from it, or or how does this how does this impact uh, the other parts of your your working life? Uh, well, my work, I've been focusing on the book uh, and the research uh, so much that um, <laughs> a lot of other things have sort of fallen by the wayside. Um, but I, I think there's some uh, one important way is that um, all along this whole process or during this whole process, uh, I've been sharing this information with um, with um, people within the anti-corruption community. Uh, people in civil society organizations, people who are uh, at the grassroots. And um, that has been one objective, to basically get this information out there and get the lessons learned out there. Uh, Because we don't have a lot of information about how citizens uh, are impacting corruption around the world. These kinds of um, movements, campaigns, and local community initiatives are not usually covered by the international media, uh, so people don't learn about them. Uh, you know, what one, uh, these, the people from one uh, civic initiative or movement do not always have opportunities to meet with people from other movements and initiatives, so they don't have as many opportunities as would be uh, great uh, to exchange information and knowledge and share uh, with one another. So my hope is that with this book, that it will be the book will be a catalyst for these kinds of peer-to-peer exchanges, for these kinds of uh, you know peer-to-peer learning uh, opportunities, and to basically give uh, people who are fighting corruption or who are uh, fighting impunity uh, on the ground uh, inspiration and hope that it is possible to have an impact, uh, no matter how tough one's circumstances may seem. Others have been doing it and and have achieved um, really amazing um, outcomes. Uh, 
Just to remind everyone, Chaska's book is uh, called Curtailing Corruption, People Power for Accountability and Justice. It's uh, available uh, from Lynn Reiner, the publisher, uh, published this year, uh, available widely. I encourage people to uh, go out and read the book. I think there's a lot to be learned from it. Uh, Shaska, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, great. Uh, thank you, Heath. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share information about the book.